SimCity. Didn't we already do this one? Well, let's find out when we talk SimCity 5 this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 28 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, back with you once again to talk about an old game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Well, no, I guess this week we're probably we're not talking about an old game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era, but like I've done once before with XCOM, we're going to talk about a new game in an old series in the non-DOS and Windows 8 gaming era, I guess we can call it the Windows 7 and 8 gaming era. So uh, I'm excited to do that. So we'll, we'll get to that very shortly. Spring has sprung around here. It is nice. It is 20 something or 19 something degrees Celsius for uh, all those of you that, that follow the metric system like I do. And uh, it's warm in Fahrenheit to all the Americans. Uh, aside from that, yeah, you know, I'm, uh, I'm running outside now. It's, it's nice. We did a whole bunch of stuff yesterday. I raked the yard, changed the winter tires up one of the cars. And, uh, yeah, I'm very, very happy that the sun is out. It's not raining and all that. But, uh, for today I am indoors, I am podcasting and I'm enjoying that just as much. I may have myself a beer at some point cause it's that kind of day. But anyways, uh, aside from that, uh, this week, for some reason, and I have no idea why, I've been playing a lot of uh, an indie game called uh, Euro Truck Simulator 2, which came out uh, on Steam via Steam Greenlight a little while back, and it actually got me to thinking. I know I'm, I'm, I'm probably getting a little philosophical right off the bat here at the beginning of the show, but it seems to me that with a lot of these games that I've been enjoying lately, like Euro Truck Simulator, Train Simulator 2013, heck, I even bought Farming Simulator 2013, it really does seem like uh, because of programs like Steam Greenlight and Kickstarter and other things like that, that the simulation genre has kind of come back as of late. There's a lot more of these really cool sim games. Some of them are quite realistic. Some of them are less realistic. Some of them are more fun. But, uh, you know, if you're, if you're into into sims, I would really give things, give things a look, you know, like Euro Truck Simulator, which is a surprisingly engaging game about driving a big rig delivery truck across Europe and running kind of a little trucking company. I haven't quite gotten to that part yet, but uh, that's a quick review. Euro Truck Simulator 2013, give it a go. It was on sale last week for uh, for half price, so I think it was only it was $10 or $19, something like that. But anyways, yeah, that. Train Simulator, again, very engaging, even though you'd think that driving a train, being that it's on a track, wouldn't be very difficult. So anyways, that. I haven't tried Farming Simulator yet, but I'm interested to give that a whirl. So that's it for uh, the simulation wrap-up of modern Steam uh, Greenlight Simulator games. Uh, let's get to the news before I go off on too much more of a tangent, being that uh, I've already been talking for three minutes and I haven't said anything useful. So <laughs> in the news in the last two weeks since we came out with the last episode, uh, Jane Jensen was recently interviewed about her upcoming game, Mobius. Uh she refers to it as a fringe-style metaphysical sci-fi thriller. An alpha build of Mobius has uh, has been released to backers, and from the screenshots I've seen in, in this article and around, the game really does look great. 
uh, it's it's awesome that, like I was just saying with these other games, uh, we seem to be getting really close to the point where the first round of, of Kickstarter-backed games from you know our uh, our esteemed idols, I guess from uh, from from the time that I like to cover on the podcast, are, are getting close to release. So Mobius is scheduled to release by the end of this year, 2013. Next, there's actually been quite a bit of news, again, getting back to uh, Kickstarter and our, our, our idols from the time. Uh, there's been quite a bit of news out of Chris Roberts and his studio, Cloud Imperium Games. Uh, I'll focus on this one little piece, because a lot of it, a lot of the other stuff has to do with, you know, releases about the game and releasing certain types of ships and showing what things are going to be like and how he's going to develop the game or how they're developing the game and all that stuff. But this one's quite interesting. Cloud Imperium has actually opened a new office in Santa Monica, California to expand the footprint of its existing office spaces in Austin, Texas and Los Angeles. Uh, amidst kind of all the news of, of EA laying off employees, and I know EA Montreal got hit pretty hard and a whole bunch of other stuff like that, uh, it's great to hear, for me at least, that some development studios are actually expanding their footprint, they're opening new offices, they're doing cool things, so it's not just, oh, the gaming industry is going to hell because the big guys are laying everyone off and all this stuff. It's kind of the smaller guys are, are thriving and there's a lot of cool stuff going on. Uh, finally, some interesting news out of the XCOM camp, which I think is, is interesting considering what I'm going to be doing today and uh, that I already did it for XCOM Enemy Unknown. Uh, if you remember, back when I originally talked about XCOM a long time ago, and when I talked, I believe I mentioned it in the uh, podcast where I talked about Enemy Unknown, uh, I mentioned that there were actually two newer XCOM projects in the works. So the first one being the game that eventually became XCOM Enemy Unknown, and a first-person shooter. Uh, well, it seems the development on that first-person shooter has taken a turn and has emerged as a third-person tactical shooter known as the Bureau. Uh, it appears to take place in the 50s, at least that's what I could see from the screenshots, and uh, it's embracing elements from the original game, like squad-based tactics and team member permadeath. Uh, as of now, there's really no gameplay to be seen. It's really just kind of in the preview teaser idea, you know, teased-out idea phase, but uh, but the idea certainly sounds good, and, and the way... The, uh, the lead designer talks about it. Sounds sounds very interesting. It's actually a, an article that I found on Penny Arcade. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll post that and all these other stories in the show notes, as I always do. So that's it for my random babbling and the news. But before we get to the main thrust of the show, we have some comments from you guys. First, a website comment from Alima on the last show on Strike Commander. She writes, Great podcast. Strike Commander wasn't on my radar at all, but your podcast is nonetheless really interesting and engaging. Always a treat. Sorry to hear that it doesn't hold up, but guess at least a couple of the games you cover are bound to fa fail on that count. Definitely looking forward to your thoughts on SimCity. As a fan of the older games, I've stayed away from the 2013 installment after I got really negative feedback from reviewers I've come to rely on. Thank you, Alima, and, uh, you know, we're going to see what there is to see on SimCity, and uh, I may have some stuff to say there one way or another, but, uh, you know, with regard to Strike Commander, I it, it does actually pain me, I think I said it, I said it in the show, and whenever this does happen, it hasn't happened much, but to me, when, the, when games don't hold up, it actually does pain me to say it, because I, I do have a lot of fond memories of Strike Commander, and I was, I was 
actually, it's interesting how I get surprised about these things because with you know Fallout 1 and 2 from the week before uh, we did Strike Commander, I was certain that those games wouldn't hold up because I remember them being horribly difficult and all that, and they did hold up. And I remember Strike Commander being fun and interesting and entertaining and incredible looking at the time and all that, so I was sure it was going to hold up, which is why I was so excited to do it as soon as I got the chance after it became available on, uh, on GOG. And I was quite shocked that I, I didn't really have a good time with it. So, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. Some games, I guess, are, are left best left to the time that they're played. And some of them, you know, still still hold up. So sadly, at least for me, and, and again, I always say this is my opinion and nobody else's. So anyone listening, Strike Commander may be tons of fun for you. And it may very well be. And if you've played it recently and you think that that's the case, you think I'm crazy, email in, call in, or, you know, send me a voicemail. Do whatever you want and let me know because they're, they're, I'm I'm by no means the authority on this stuff. I'm just a guy that, that plays a game for a while that he used to play and then he talks about it uh, into his Macintosh and, uh, and puts it on a feed for people to listen to. So, you know, I'm by no means gospel on this. So definitely, if you guys disagree with me, let me know. Call me out. Next, we have a follow-up comment to, uh, to Alima's comment from Francisco. He writes, Similar to Alima, I had never heard of Strike Commander, but your show on it was fun and insightful nonetheless. Curious if there are any similar style flight sims that you would recommend in the modern time period, I mean, as opposed to Red Baron or Wing Commander. Last, great job over on Game Club. Your input there was definitely more than serviceable. Thanks for the show, Joe. Well, thank you, Francisco. As, as I said last time, uh, I had a great time on, on Game Club. You guys should go check them out, the Elder Geek Game Club. But uh, aside from that, recommendations. I know I did answer, uh, I answered this comment on, uh, on the website. But uh, for everyone else, uh, flight sim-wise in the modern time period, I know there's one, uh, one called X-Plane, which is not new, but it's, it's kind of, I think, the biggest flight sim around right now that's uh, has a huge mod community around it. it's an incredibly moddable game uh, i know people that do our flight sim enthusiasts do quite enjoy it it's, it, it supports this whole kind of you know thousands of dollars uh, flight control system with a yoke and throttles and rudder pedals and multiple monitors and head tracking and all this craziness i think you can actually make quite a, a realistic flight simulator hardware setup based on x-plane now, I don't know if there's combat in it. I think there is. Uh, another one is Microsoft Flight Simulator 2010. Now, that one definitely has no combat in it, but that's probably uh, one of the more approachable but uh, but realistic flight sims in recent years. Uh, there's a newer version out called Microsoft Flight. I would stay away from that because it's re- I, I tried it. You can try it for free, so, I mean, there's no harm in giving it a whirl, but uh, you can get it on Steam. I kind of feel like it's a bit of a money grab. Like the, the the physics aren't as realistic as they were in Microsoft Flight Sim 2010, which is kind of silly because the game was already there. Uh, if you want any kind of additional planes, you have to buy them, DLC. So it's kind of this DLC money grab kind of situation. And frankly, I just didn't like it as much. I ordered Microsoft Flight Sim 2010 off of eBay for not a whole lot of money. And, uh, you know, I think there's some patches and stuff that, that make it, it looks great. It plays great. There's very detailed flight school programs where you go through a whole thing and they teach you all kinds of different stuff that I actually learned. Like the, the flight school program was very similar to the flight school program that I actually went to when I got my private pilot's license. 
you know, they teach you things like, you know, approach and the circuit and entering slow flight and how to do a proper turn. And it's just very, very interesting, very, very deep. There's voice narration, just like the instructor sitting next to you. Uh, it shows you what to do. It's, it's very cool. And I would highly recommend if you're in, if you want a non-combat uh, modern flight simulator, uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator 2010. You can get it. You can definitely get it on eBay. And uh, I'm sure if you Google, you I don't think they have downloads of it, but you can definitely get uh, get a DVD version. So finally, Josh sent me a voicemail just as I was putting up the last show, and he has some stuff to say about Fallout. So take it away, Josh. Hey Joe, this is Josh from Portland, Oregon. Hey, I just hit you with some feedback on your Fallout podcast. Um, it was great. Um, I thought you gave it the time and attention it deserved. So um, thanks for putting that out, buddy. Um, the uh, early games I played and I enjoyed, and for their time, they were incredible. Um, but if I may stray from, from the uh, DOS time period, the Fallout 3 really, I think, changed gaming. Um, and uh, I loved it. I played it. I've played it probably four times all the way through. You know, good karma, bad karma, it's different storylines. And, uh, and I've never found everything. Um, I know there's still stuff in that game that I haven't found. <clears throat> and that, that game also changed me as a gamer because um, it was the first game where they, where I thought they, they, they gave us as post-apocalypse buffs what we really wanted, which was an, opened, an open wasteland to uh, you know, explore and um, to scavenge and just to wreak havoc upon. And uh, so that moment... In, uh, which is the seminal moment of all the Fallout games when you step out of the vault into the, the bright sunlight and you see the wasteland for the first time was such a thrill, especially you know in Fallout 3 because it happens almost at the very beginning of the game. You get out of the vault and there's you know a million acre sandbox. Have fun. That's awesome. Uh, I had a podcast for a little while um, that was uh, about just post-apocalyptic stories and stuff. Um, Hopefully, if I could find a, a co-host, I'll start it up again. But um, Fallout 3 was a topic that I, t- I tried to tackle. Um, it was just a little while after it came out, and uh, I just I couldn't I couldn't talk about enough of it. It was just hours and hours and hours of drivel. But um, one of the cool things I liked about it um, was something that you mentioned, and that is all the pop culture references. Um, so that was really cool because every time every time you see something new, something cool, a character or a situation or a weapon uh, or a clan of people, there, there it was almost always uh, a, a tie or it's an homage to something else. Um, one of the cool scenes in the in the game, well, the, the end scene actually, the end uh, full motion when they're doing the, the closing narration on Fallout 3, there's a guy, um, you see him from behind the, the wasteland, um, or the, what is it, vault dweller, and uh, he's walking away from the camera, he's got that single shoulder kind of football pad looking thing on, and his dog's walking with him, and that's basically the, the cover um, for the film The Road Warrior, um, but in reverse, so that was a great homage, um, there, there were a lot, and uh, the Mad Max films are what started me off as a young kid on my lifetime obsession with, with post-poc stuff. And, uh, yeah, so the Mad Max are huge. And they figure prominently in Fallout 3. Uh, another one that was really awesome that I loved um, was in Fallout 3, there's a, lo- there's a town of children. They live in a cave system. 
and uh, once the kids reach 18, they have a birthday party, and then they kick them out, and they have to go live in Old Town, and, and uh, because they don't want you know adults being around, because adults you know, were the ones that destroyed the world essentially, and the mayor of that town is this little kid, and he's he's got a real bad attitude, <laughs> um, but he's a pretty you know he's pretty effective little character. Um, he's got a gun, and he's wearing a Livingston hat, and um, you know, he's lippy, and he's, um, I believe his name is McCready, I can, I think that's right. Um, anyway, he, his character is, is an homage to the, the son of the pilot in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and that was a, that was a great little thing. I run into him, like, hey, wait a minute, I know this kid from somewhere, um, so that one was very cool. Uh, anyway, that I, there, I could keep talking about Fallout forever, um, <laughs> But yeah, I think it. I think it uh, changed gaming forever. It changed the post-apocalyptic drama, uh, genre forever. And oh my, I, I cannot wait for the next one. Um, so I, yeah, I'm <laughs> eager anticipation. All games will pale in comparison until that next Fallout comes out. So um, anyway, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, your next podcast. And uh, talk at you later. Thanks, Joe. Well, thank you so much, Josh. Um, you know, it's. It, I have to agree. I mean, Fallout, like I, like I said in the Fallout podcast, Fallout Three is is still remains my favorite, my top uh, Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty title. I played it on the Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty, but I would argue that anywhere I played it, it would remain one of my all time favorite games. I think I do personally like it better than than the first two Fallout's, just because I find it more playable. I find it more interesting. Uh, it's it's a bit more fast-paced. I like the fact that it's kind of semi-turn-based as opposed to fully turn-based because, as I said, it flows a little bit better. And yeah, you know, like the, the world is is just so big and there's so much stuff. And like you, it seems like you're kind of with post-apocalyptic stories and, and things like that, you you seem like you're kind of the way I am about things like, uh, like Star Wars and Battletech. Like I, I know a lot. I'm a huge Star Wars EU fan, like I said in the X-Wing show. And, you know, if I turn around here behind me, I have a, a bookshelf with over, you know, 100, 120 Star Wars expanded or expanded universe books. So, you know, I get to see little references from here and there. I'm interested to see what uh, what Disney and, and JJ are going to do with uh, with the next Star Wars film. And that's kind of like how you are. You know, I, I've seen The Road Warrior. I actually watched it recently because... I don't remember why, but I ended up getting it on Blu-ray kind of for free or in trade with some... I traded in a game at Best Buy or something, and they gave you another game and Road Warrior on Blu-ray for some reason. And you can definitely see the the influences between Road Warrior, especially in kind of the armor. You know, they, they have the, the, single, the, the single pauldron shoulder thing or the, the ripped-off leather jacket, the, the one-armed leather jacket and stuff like that. So... Yeah, it's cool. I mean, Fallout is great. Fallout started changing games when the first ones came out. I mean, these were huge games at the time. The graphics looked good. Uh, they were very deep. The, there was speech when there weren't speech in games of that size before. Uh, and the voice acting was top-notch. I mean, they had Hollywood-level voice actors, and, and it was just, just incredible. And Fallout 3 just kept taking that forward. It was still very much a Fallout game, even though it was done by a different studio. But... Um, you know, it was still a different thing. So, yeah, thanks, and, and keep on listening. Keep on sending me stuff. I love it when uh, when you send in stuff like this, so, so keep it coming. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for All right. So as I've done once before back in episode 19, which isn't as long ago as I thought it was, but uh, still a while back, this week I'm changing gears a little bit. I won't be covering an old game or a series. I will be covering a new game that is continuing on an old series. So this week, I will be talking about the somewhat controversial fifth installment in the SimCity series, known simply as SimCity. Throughout the show, I'll probably be referring to it as SimCity 5 or SimCity 2013 or simply the new game or something like that. So as I did with XCOM, this show will focus a bit more on how the game both continues the traditions and spirits of the series and also how it differs from the previous games. SimCity 5 was developed by Maxis and published by their parent company, Electronic Arts. The game released a little less than two months ago on March 5th, 2013. So let's talk genre. Being that we've already covered the SimCity series back in episode 2, the genre won't come as a surprise to us. SimCity is a city-building game, which is a specific sub-genre of the construction management simulation. The original SimCity created the city-building genre such as it is. To quickly recap, a city-building game places the player into a few major roles. In modern terms, you're the mayor, the city council, and the chief urban planner all rolled into one. City-building sims do tend to place the player in a much more kind of godlike or monarch-like role than would otherwise be allowed in a normal democratic society. So let's say you actually play like three or four people plus a city council. I mean, you're allowed to make unilateral decisions about how to place buildings and infrastructure, how to set tax rates, which social programs to implement, and generally how to guide the development of your city. Of course, all this spending has to be balanced off with income to keep your city's coffers in the black. So enough about that. If you want to hear about this genre in more detail, then head way back to episode two and give it a listen. I may be a little more halting back there because it's uh, it was my second time around over a year ago, but... Uh, Good info back in that podcast, episode two on the original SimCity games. I've talked all the way up to SimCity 4 in that one. So, story. SimCity 5 maintains the same concept of free-roaming sandbox gameplay than the original did. What this means is that the story, as we've talked about before, is really up to you. There's no real narrative story being told throughout this game. It's a simulation. The storyline is up to you to create either via your imagination or via your actions. Previous SimCity games gave you kind of a modicum of storytelling via scenarios. In scenarios, you were placed in pre-existing situations and given a goal to achieve. You may have been placed in a city after a fire and forced to rebuild. You may be placed in a small failing community and be required to build it, in, build it into a thriving metropolis. But really, these scenarios in previous games just provided you with a little bit of backstory and, again, how the story progressed was really up to your imagination, or lack thereof. In SimCity 5, scenarios don't really exist per se. That isn't to say you aren't provided with backstory. When you begin a new game, you're required to choose a region to place your city in. I'll get into more details about regions when we talk gameplay, but for now, we'll focus on the description of those regions. So, region descriptions give us an idea of the makeup of each region, in addition to what kind of cities would do well inside of them. For example, the region known as Sunrunner Bay has the following overall description. Sunrunner Bay is a small island region connected to the mainland by a narrow highway. A pair of cities share this beautiful island. 
So Sunrunner Bay has space for two cities, each of which are named and described. First, we have Plunder Point. Its description is this. Plunder Point is located at the southern tip of the island chain. It is a great port city that is ideal for trading through sea. Plunder Point also has abundant ore deposits. Finally, the other city is called Corsair Coast. Corsair Coast, its beautiful coastline, is ideal for wealthy tourist destination. Its large crude oil and ore deposits can be used to generate revenue to build a city specialized in gambling or culture. Now granted, this isn't much in the way of background, but if you're into creating worlds and stories for your cities, the names and descriptions of the regions and city locations are certainly a helpful base in doing so. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, on to the meat of things and where SimCity generally shines, the gameplay. In many, many ways. The gameplay of SimCity 5 is similar to that of all previous games. In other ways, it's an evolution from the previous release, SimCity 4, and in some ways, it is completely unique. I guess the best way to do this is to go through things in sequence and point out what's the same and what's different. So starting the game, you're greeted with a fun intro that's very reminiscent of recent Maxis games like The Sims. The intro is very quick, moving, fun, quirky, and, and frankly does get you very excited for what you're about to embark on. You're then brought to the login screen where you access your origin account. Here we see one major difference between SimCity 5 and previous titles. While older SimCity games did offer some multiplayer functionality, SimCity 5 requires you to be always online, even if you're playing alone. Even before the release, this was a major point of contention with players. The argument from EA was that much of the simulation's features were run server-side and, uh, and required a player to be connected for those aspects of the game to work. Now, this may or may not be true, as some critics of the game were, in fact, through a little bit of, of hackery, able to make the game run in an offline state. So the fact that EA is saying, oh no, the power grid and the weather and... And all this stuff is all done server-side. Didn't appear to be the case, but we really don't have any, any confirmation of that. So suffice it to say that being online is a requirement to play, and it is highly unlikely that that option will ever be removed from the game. Frankly, I have a very strong suspicion that uh, always online will become a de facto standard kind of going forward for services like Origin and Steam, uh, even if the game doesn't really require you to be online for gameplay. I mean, rumors of the next Xbox uh, requiring a constant connection are also flying around. So whatever anyone honestly thinks of Always Online, it's most likely the way of the future at, at the very least for, for bigger game devs and, uh, and bigger game services. So I think it's sadly something, whether or not you agree with it, we are going to have to live with. Anyways, you're connected to Origin and you're ready to play. If this is your first time playing, a server gets auto-selected for you, probably based on a combination of where you are and current load and, and blah blah blah. You always have the option of changing to a different server if you know of one that has friends on it or if you just prefer to play on another server for any other reason. Honestly, this isn't World of Warcraft. There's no PvP servers, PvE servers, RP servers, anything like that. A server is a server. It doesn't really matter. The only reason you'd select a specific server is because you know people on it. So, since we are assuming this is your first time playing, you'll be required to go through the tutorial. The tutorial takes you to the in-progress region known as Endeavor Isle. 
This region is actually a temporary copy of the Sunrunner Bay region that we talked about in the story section. This tutorial takes you through the basics of gameplay. You're taken to the small town of Summer Shoals, which has been so poorly run by the previous mayor that the, uh, the, the populace ran him out of town. Uh, so you're the new mayor. Your city administrator provides you with some very simple tasks like connecting your city to the regional road network, adding roads, zoning, changing speed, managing your tax rates, and, and kind of more local management tasks. It also quickly explains to you the region view and how to interact with neighbor cities. Once the tutorial is complete, you're brought back to the main menu and you can now create your first city. So the first thing you have to do is select a region to play in. As of right now, SimCity offers us eight different regions to play in. As I said in the story section, each region has its own unique attributes. There are regions with two, three, five, seven, 11, and 16 spots for cities. And each of them also have one or more spots for a great work. The uh, two to seven city regions all have single great work sites. The 11 city region has three great work sites and the 16 city regions have four sites. In addition, each region has its own mix of land and water, flat to mountainous terrain, and resources. Since we're trying to keep things simple here, let's just go with Sunrunner Bay and a two-city, one-great-work option. From here, you get to name your region. I called, I called mine Upper Memory Block. <laughs> and, uh, and choose exactly how you're going to play. There's two game modes in SimCity 5, Multiplay and Sandbox Mode. In Sandbox Mode, you play on your own with basically infinite money, instant building construction, and all kinds of other cheats active. This mode exists more to kind of mess around and try things or build a city and then burn it to the ground without affecting your persistent cities in the real game. Sandbox mode is entertaining, but not really into the intended method of play. Multiplay mode is the actual proper game. In multiplay mode, we can select the privacy level of our region. In a public region, any player can enter and claim a city. A private region is invite only. If you want to play alone for a more single player experience, simply create a private region and don't invite anyone to play with you. This is the way I generally play the game. Uh, unless any of you listeners want to play, I'm BillyBob476 on Origin, and uh, you know we could always start up a game uh, with, with listeners. That'd be kind of cool, actually, now that I think about it. Maybe we should do that. Oh, well, add me to your friends list. Feel free. Haha. <laughs> so we've created our region, and we've we're taken into the regional view. Our next step is to claim a city in the region. Since we chose a small map, we only have two options here. You can click on each available city site to see a short description and a series of indicators of the resources available to that specific area. Each resource can have up to three bars filled in. So zero bars means that a resource is not available in the region. One or two bars means some is available and three bars means that that resource is abundant. Available exploitable resources are coal, ore, oil, water, and wind. Additionally, here you can see what kind of regional connections your potential city has. Road, rail, and sea. Or, and or sea. You could have either all three of them or any other combination of them, except road is a constant. You always have a road connection. Rail or sea connections are optional in that, depending on where you are, like, for example, Sunrunner Isle doesn't have any rail network, so you won't have a city with a, uh, with a rail connection, but you may have sea connections. These connections have an important impact on commerce and, uh, and tourism access to your city. So this region view is sort of an evolution of the, uh, the region view from SimCity 4. In SimCity 4, the region view really only existed for you to select where you'd build your city, 
and allow you to create some neighbor cities to trade some services with. In SimCity 4, you could, I can't think you could trade garbage services and maybe power and something else like that. There's a lot more to do that, uh, do here than that. SimCity 5 finds you spending much more time in the region view and interacting with neighbors and much more. But for now, let's just select our city. We'll talk about the region stuff a little later on. Plunder Point to the north boasts a lot of resources and a coastline for a seaport. That sounds like a good place to build a mining and trade hub. So let's choose that. So you claim Plunder Point for your own. You're now taken down to the city view. You're also quickly introduced to another aspect of SimCity 5 gameplay that differs from previous games. You're immediately given some small tasks to perform. There are ta these tasks are, are sort of like small quests for you to perform for a paltry reward. Your first quest is to connect your city to the regional road network. First things first though, we need to take a look at the plot of land we've been given and do some high level city planning. Pulling up the plethora of data maps, we really only care about a few things right now. We're planning to make a city that is focused on resource gathering. So we need to see where the coal, oil, and ore deposits are on this map. We'll then have to keep those in mind as we build out the city. In my first city, I, I didn't do this, and I ended up developing my downtown core right on top of the richest ore deposit on the map. I had huge condo towers and office buildings sitting on top of it. I could either bulldoze them, displacing a huge portion of my population, or I could just live with it. All that could have been avoided had I simply looked before I built. Two other things to look at are the city's water table and the prevailing winds. Every city needs water and your water generating facilities are only as effective as the amount of groundwater located directly beneath them. Knowing where your largest concentrations of groundwater are, again, allows you to plan your city right. You'll want to place pollution generating facilities like low-tech industry, garbage dumps, sewage pipes, and dirty power plants away from your dense sources of water. Finally, air pollution travels via the prevailing winds. Placing power plants, dumps, and low-tech industry downwind of residential areas is not ideal for a variety of reasons, including the fact that your sims do not like it when the air smells bad. <laughs> uh, this concept of resources is a new one to SimCity. It definitely adds a whole new layer of gameplay to the standard city-building experience. Now that we have a rough idea of where we need to place things, we can start building. Like in most other SimCity games, the base building blocks of your city are roads and zones. Starting from SimCity 2000, zones were the thing that defined the density of the construction taking place. If you wanted a residential neighborhood with a small to medium size, you know, with small to medium size houses and no apartment buildings and no condos and nothing like that, you would zone low density residential. A road was a road. This model continued to evolve until SimCity 4, where you still zone by density to the point where your low density residential was, I think, farmland and stuff like that. Uh, however, the roads you built were a little more complex in that the ones that you would build via the road tool were actually larger avenues. Smaller local roads were auto-generated when you created your zones. Also, all zones cost money. If you zoned land that was too far from a road, it just simply wouldn't develop. Well, SimCity 5 turns this concept of zoning on its head compared to previous games. In SimCity 5, it's not the zone that defines the density of the buildings constructed there, it's the road. So you have quite a few options for roads, ranging from a simple dirt road to low density, medium density, and high density streets. The low density streets are small two-lane roads that sport stop signs and intersections. 
Medium-density streets are four lanes, but still manage traffic via stop signs. High-density streets are still four lanes, but handle intersections via traffic lights. Your other options for surface travel are avenues. Avenues are available in medium-density, high-density, or high-density streetcar. High-density avenues boast six lanes and, at the highest level, can support a dedicated streetcar line in the middle of the road. High-density avenues can handle the highest traffic volume of any other road. They are also the most expensive. So once your road's down, you can place zones. As in all other SimCity games, you can place either residential, commercial, or industrial zones. Unlike other games, zones do not get placed on the land in blocks. Zone placement is only possible next to a road. So you create a square so if you create a square block of road, you can lay zone all around the road within that square. So you're basically defining anything that's along this road is going to be, say, residential, and anything along this part of the road is also going to be residential. The other side of the road maybe will be commercial. So if your block is built to the proper size, it will eventually completely fill in with low-density buildings, regardless of what density roads attach to. They'll all start off at low density. The only thing the road does is it limits. So as your city develops, as your, the area develops, and uh, the density wants to increase if you're only attached to a, to a low-density road, well, it's going to stop and the people are going to complain that, hey, the road does not allow us to, uh, to increase further. Now, also, unlike previous games, SimCity 5 supports the creation of curved and twisting roads. Well, a grid is the easiest type of city to plan and maintain, curved roads can certainly come in handy for connecting mislined areas of your city, going around terrain obstacles, and even minimizing intersections to better manage traffic. Curved roads aren't just a pretty feature. They actually do serve a purpose if, uh, if you elect to use them. So now we have some zoning and we have some roads. We're connected to the regional highway, but for some reason no one's moving in. Well, a new mission should have popped up asking you to plop a power plant. The plopping is SimCity's term for placing a building, most likely because the game makes sort of a plop noise when a building goes down. Again, like in other SimCity games, you have a variety of options for power plants, ranging from uh, cheap polluting coal plants to clean wind and solar power to expensive nuclear plants. Here, the prevailing winds again come into play. If they're strong enough, you can invest in wind power. If you're burning fossil fuels, make sure you place your plant upwind of your residential and commercial areas. Another new aspect of power is the purchase of fuel. If you're running a coal or oil plant, you'll have to either buy the fuel to run it from the global market, buy it from a neighbor, or extract it from the ground yourself. Since we're just starting out and we have no neighbors yet, we'll just buy it from the market. So now we have power and people begin moving in. This is a place where SimCity really shines. You can zoom in incredibly close to the action. Zooming in on the new residential areas shows construction vehicles moving in and small houses start to take shape. Once completed, the houses visibly go up for sale. Then moving trucks roll in and your new citizens take possession of their homes. It's really cool to see a small fleet of moving trucks taking up parking on a street as everyone moves in. Of course, your citizens need places to work and shop. All those needs are indicated via the traditional SimCity RCI, Residential Commercial Industrial Indicator, the uh, bar chart, I guess we can call it. So you proceed this way, adding all the traditional services like water, fire, medical, police, and building up your city. In this sort of standard gameplay scenario, three major aspects of SimCity 5 gameplay come to light. Firstly, you no longer need to lay water pipes or power lines. Everything is transported beneath the road network. Now, this is certainly a simplification over previous games, but I don't really think it's a bad one. 
Uh, I usually ended up running pipes under my roads anyways, and power lines were already virtually removed from SimCity 4, except if you wanted to run power to a, rem a remote area. Secondly, SimCity 5 does not support any type of manual terraforming. In previous games, you could modify the land either before you started in god mode, or during gameplay using the landscaping tools. You wanted to dig into a hillside? You could. You wanted to raise the ground? You could. In SimCity 5, this option no longer exists. Any changes to the land are directly related to placing elements. Thought you want to place a building on a hillside? Well, you certainly can. The hillside will either be built out to support the structure or cut in so that uh, the structure can be at ground level. The same goes for any changes to make roads work. Any land changes are automated. Finally, what I think is the coolest change to SimCity, we have modules. Now let's say you've built a fire station. In previous games, if you needed additional fire service, you'd simply build another fire station. Not so in the new game. You have the option of upgrading your existing fire hall. You can add an additional garage to house another fire truck or a bell tower to increase responsiveness. The same goes for most other service buildings in the game. You have a coal power plant, add an additional furnace to produce more power. Basically any non, I guess we could say zone generated, so not like an apartment building or anything like that. Nothing that's generated out of one of your zones. Uh, any non-zone generated building in the game can be further modified in some way. This aspect gets even more interesting once you start expanding your town hall with different department modules. As your town grows, you're given the opportunity to plop a town hall. Once you hit certain population milestones, you can add modules to the town hall, like a department of tourism, department of transport, department of safety, and more. Adding these departments unlocks more advanced buildings and uh, more advanced options for existing buildings. It's really a very cool system and always keeps you working towards some kind of goal. Finally, the biggest and most interesting gameplay element in SimCity is city specialization. When we started, I said we'd be creating a mining town. Well, bringing us down to the city specialization menu gives us that option. Moving to the mining submenu, we have the option of creating a coal mine or an ore mine. Plopping it just uh, then creates jobs and begins generating units of that resource. If we have a coal power plant and we plop a coal mine, we can keep the coal for our own use, and we can avoid paying for coal from the global market. But uh, what we really want to do right now is sell it. To sell our materials, we need a trade depot. A trade depot with the appropriate storage lot module allows us to manage what we are doing with our resource. So with our coal mine, we can decide to keep the coal for local use, sell it on the global market or to a neighbor, or buy it from the global market or a neighbor. The trade depot also accepts freight from your local industry for export. This increases the happiness of your industrial buildings. As you develop your mining and trade facilities, you open up more options in your chosen specialization. You can open a metals HQ, which allows further upgrading to more advanced mines, trade ports, and a production type building. In the case of metals, it provides the smelting factory. These production facilities can take your raw ore and smelt it into metals and alloys, which can be sold on the market for more money or used by your more advanced local industry. So that's basically how specializations work. Now you're not limited to a single specialization and for mining and oil, it might be a good idea to even have a fallback. Unlike wind and water, the other resources on your map are not renewable. Play your city long enough and you'll mine away all the coal, oil, and ore. And if that's the case and you have nothing else providing income to your city, you will go bankrupt. Now, other business-type specializations include electronics and gambling. 
The game also has some secondary specializations that you could do, such as a garbage, power, or culture. So garbage and power, I mean, technically you could do this with almost any, uh, any of your resources. Garbage, power, water, sewage. Uh, all these ones work by selling those services to nearby cities. You can also invest in culture, which attracts tourists to your city and actually pairs quite well with the uh, gambling specialization. Finally, there's the education specialization. While education is not a requirement, educated citizens are much happier. They cause less fires. They have a higher ability to increase their wealth level from low to medium and on to high. Each city needs its own grade schools. As Sims won't travel out of town for that. However, you eventually gain the ability to create community colleges and universities. For these facilities, regional citizens will make the trek, provided you add school bus stops in other cities. Providing your region with a university is a huge advantage. More educated citizens will start building higher tech industry, which runs cleaner and makes more money. The university is also required to gain access to certain great works. Adding modules like a school of engineering adds more advanced options for power plants. School of medicine adds options to your healthcare and more. Education is hugely important in a region if you want to maximize its potential. Now, speaking of regions, I should certainly talk about the region view a little bit. We started out in a small region with two cities. Eventually, you'll either decide to invite a friend to your private region, someone may have already claimed the other city in your public region, or you'll decide that you want to start in another city yourself. So since we made a mining city with a bunch of existing services, we can now take advantage of that when we create a new city. Moving over to the other plot of land, we may decide to build a tourism city since it's on the coast, or perhaps an education city, or anything else we decide. Well, we don't need to build a power plant, sewage treatment, we don't need to build garbage facilities, we don't even need police, fire, or healthcare. As long as the more mature city has an excess of capacity, we can buy all those things from that city for a reasonable fee. This is completely this is a completely maintainable way to grow your region. In fact, the I believe the fire ambulance, all the truck-based services, I think you, you buy resources. So you buy power and you buy water and you say you pay for sending sewage. But uh, the other city actually volunteers fire trucks, ambulances, garbage trucks, so you don't even pay for that service. They just come and they, and they take it away as long as they have the excess capacity. So say we decide to make our second city an education and electronics-focused city. Well, we can take processed materials like plastics and metals from the original, from our original mining city and supply our electronics plant. Lesser educated sims from the mining city will come to our university. Less educated sims from our city, the education city, will travel to the mining city for work. Perhaps my city has an expo center. You know, sims from both cities will attend events. They're generating tourism dollars. I mean, if you make your cities kind of complementary and supporting each other, it can all actually work fairly well. Finally, we get to the great work. Now, great works are monumental projects that require input from multiple cities to complete. There are four great works available in the game right now. They are the Space Center, the International Airport, the Solar Farm, and the Arcology. The Arcology is the easiest, fairly the easiest work to unlock. All that's required is uh, you have a city with 58,000 residents. The Arcology provides unlimited uh, shoppers, workers, and students to the surrounding cities. So this effectively means that your existing residential zones can be removed in favor of other buildings. The solar farm provides unlimited cheap power to the region, uh, negating the need for power plants. It's unlocked via the university. 
The Space Center is also unlocked via the university and acts as both a tourist attraction and a place of higher learning. The Space Center makes all cities act as though they have a university. Finally, the International Airport is unlocked by having 100 or more tourists arriving at a regional airport. The airport brings tourists and freight into and out of the region. Now, all great works require resources and money to build. Cities in the region need to send such items to the great work. And of course, the benefits of these great works are substantial. So that's that, I guess. I mean, there's always more I could say about public transit, more specialization, how to interact with other players, sewage, water treatment, recycling, traffic. Though many of the mundane tasks of the previous games have been automated, they've added so much that, you know, for me, I hardly noticed that I wasn't stringing power lines and laying pipe. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... I'm not going to go much into a dev story on this one. I'll just keep things kind of here in the tech focus. What I really want to focus on here is the game's engine and how it's really quite different from uh, the underpinnings of previous SimCity games. So older SimCity games modeled the behavior from a very high-level perspective. Uh, The detailed representations seen in the game's interface and statistics were generalized from from the macro-level averages of kind of the simulation, so, you know, if you zoomed in on a fire station, let's say, I like using fire station as an example today, don't ask me why, uh, you, were really, you weren't really seeing the stats of that specific fire station. You were seeing a proportion of the overall fire service stats across the entire system. So, as they've done with other things, the SimCity 5 devs turn this idea on its head. The new game engine, known as Glassbox, models every unit representable in the city as an individual agent. Now, an agent can really represent any type of element in the game. For example, the amount of sewage in your city is represented by a number of sewage agents. They are represented graphically by sewage, which is brown bubbles, nice, flowing under the street towards the closest sewage outflow pipe or sewage treatment plant. If the rate of consumption of sewage by your elimination facilities is less than your rate of production of sewage agents, then you start to have a problem. The opposite is true of water and power. If your rate of consumption of water or power agents outstrips your production of them, you again have a problem. Your citizens are also agents, and uh, a lot of aspects of the game are based on their movements. So traffic isn't measured by aggregating potential flow across a section of road and generating a heavy traffic kind of animation. Traffic is calculated based on real time on how many human agents are on a piece of road at the same time. As more agents occupy the same space, traffic increases. As traffic increases, rules dictate how long it takes for agents to move through that road section. It's actually quite incredible if you really think about it. Every action initiated by an agent is dictated by rules and each type of agent has a specific set of rules that they follow. So power plant agents have rules to generate power. When these rules run, the power plant animates a certain way and emits a certain sound. The same goes for the citizen or human agents. They have rules like go to work, return home, go shopping, react to a fire, or react to a disaster. Again, 
All these actions have associated animations and sounds. So really, every person in the game is represented by an agent. Every car is as well. When you zoom in on an intersection, every car you see is generating sounds and animations independently of one another. This results in being able to show where specific vehicles are, like garbage trucks, fire and police units, delivery trucks, ambulances, and how their actions affect the flow of traffic around them. So as I said already, the sound design in this game is incredible. From high level to low level, you always feel engaged. So when you're zoomed way out into the, in, in kind of the world view, you hear sounds from certain things. When you go right down into a, you know, a certain intersection or along a certain road, looking at a certain building, you feel like you're standing outside that building. Not only is the sound incredible, but the same goes for the graphics. On my GTX 670, the game runs super smooth. I love zooming in on buildings and watching them op you know, operate or following a citizen or a car around town. If you really get into it, I don't know, I just find it really quite, quite breathtaking and quite impressive. Now, the music in the game is composed by Chris Tilton, and it is also just great. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's not intrusive. Well, at the same time, it's re it really sets the tone and, and keeps the game feeling light and quick and jaunty and all that. Uh, I bought the soundtrack, and I listen to it really often while I'm coding at work or just kicking around needing some background music. It's honestly one of the best things to come out of the game. It is super enjoyable. And even if you don't buy the game, I would recommend you buy the soundtrack if you kind of like game music. So, with keeping all that praise and all that incredibleness and everything on the game, uh, it's most certainly not without its faults. Not at all, in fact. As I'm sure many of you know, SimCity had a very tough launch and continues to have some struggles even today. So, you know, at launch, EA didn't have enough server capacity to handle demand for the game. This resulted in long queues. It resulted in server instability, errors sinking players' uh, cities to the servers, you know, since this is an always online game with no capability for local saves, this resulted in widespread loss of progress and even loss of entire cities for the first few weeks of the game's release. Things got so bad that for a short time, Amazon actually stopped selling the game and then came back to it with a warning that, you know, customers may have issues playing the game and they should take that into account when, if they were deciding still, to still go ahead and purchase it. Gamers scorn and fury made the game the lowest reviewed item on Amazon. Uh, you know, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, you guys can get mad at me if you want, but the, frankly, this was a bit of an overreaction, and I, I feel like it had a lot more to do with the gaming community's thoughts about EA as opposed to actual issues with the game. Granted, there were issues with the game, but, you know, really? Though, as revolutionary as the game's engine is, it's also not without its faults. Uh, you know, sim agents are, are not always incredibly smart, even though they're actually referred to as intelligent agents. They're not very intelligent at times. You know, they don't actually lead truly realistic lives. So if you do follow one specific agent, you'll quickly see they don't maintain a consistent job or home. Their rules are pretty simple. They state basically, if I am home, go to the closest job. If I am at my job, go to the closest house. This initially resulted in very odd traffic patterns in larger cities, which, which caused some kind of unfixable traffic messes. The traffic issues also affected access for emergency services. So this initial traffic bug would create these cascades of issues within a city that people just couldn't get out of. Another major complaint is that the size of the individual city land areas is really quite small when compared to previous games. I remember in SimCity 2000 and even SimCity 4, it took me a long time to fill up the map. And most of the time, I don't even think I did fill up the map. Uh, in this game, you could fill up your map, meh, you know, and within a couple of hours. 
And I know that might be because and I think EA has been, you know, the devs and representatives for the game have even stated the reason they did that was because they wanted to encourage people to build multiple smaller cities. But, you know, traditionally the way people played SimCity is they wanted to create one big metropolis. And that's not really possible at the very least right now. They, they haven't said they're never going to make the land plots bigger, but they also haven't said it's something they're working on. So since its launch, EA has issued nine patches fixing various issues. As of now, we're at version 2.0, which did fix quite a few longstanding problems, including more traffic fixes. Uh, there were problems with recycling plants eventually just not working anymore. They would just basically halt. Uh, so it fixed a bunch of stuff. However, and uh, you know, I'm, I, I have experience in this being a developer as I am, it did introduce some additional bugs like uh, widespread arson fires in smaller cities, and one that I'm currently experiencing, uncontrollable germ infestation. So no matter what I do in one of my cities to, uh, to minimize germs via my medical system, via reducing pollution, doing all that, all my citizens always complain about germs. Now, EA said this is a known issue, and the team is working diligently to resolve them. So, you know, I know in my own experience at times when, when you fix certain things, you, you can inadvertently break other things. And I know... Again, these guys are under huge time constraints, huge time pressure and rushes, and so it's possible they may have pushed these things uh, through QA without testing them as thoroughly as uh, they would have otherwise. So where can we get SimCity 5? Well, I enjoy these modern game shows since this is an easy question to answer. You can get SimCity at any box store, you know, Best Buy, EB Games, whatever you want to call it. You can get it via Amazon. You can get it by EA's Origin service. You cannot get it on Steam since it's an EA game and uh, they want you to use their service instead of Steam. Uh, you also do need a free Origin account to play. It's only available for Windows right now, but a Mac version is scheduled for release June 11th and apparently... I read if you own the PC version already, the Mac version will reportedly be freely available to you. Hi, I'm Francisco Ruiz, and together with my good friend Paul Powers and a rotating guest host, we make up the Retro Rewind podcast. Twice a month, we pick a movie or video game from 15 or more years ago and discuss whether it is still worth revisiting today. So if you've thought about rewatching The Rocketeer, playing back through Mega Man X, or you're just a child of the 70s and 80s like us, you should check us out for laughs, for nostalgia, and definitely for our take on what's a classic and what's second class. Find us at RetroRewindPodcast.com, where you can subscribe on iTunes, RSS, and more. So, big question of the show. Well... A slightly different big question of the show. I'm not going to say if the game holds up today since it's modern, immersive, and beautiful looking. I'll say whether or not I enjoyed playing it and if I will keep playing. The answer is yes. Uh, you know, despite the drama, despite the, the, the existing bugs and the continuing bugs and whatever opinions people have, I mean, there's some issues with uh, the way that there's been a couple of pieces of DLC or actually one piece of DLC that, that's come out, the Nissan Leaf charging station. And, you know, that's obviously a sponsored thing from Nissan. 
And uh, there's some other DLC you can get by buying Oral-B products. And I know, you know, some people don't really agree with that kind of thing. And frankly, for me, I got the Leaf Charging Station. I haven't put it in, uh, I haven't put it in my game yet. And frankly, am I going to get the stuff that you can get via buying toothpaste? No, I'm just not going to buy it. If you don't want the DLC, if you don't agree with the way the DLC is, just don't download it. Despite all this stuff, I have tons of fun playing this game. It's as fun to me as the previous games, and with the rate they've been fixing the issues, I'm confident we'll still we'll soon be seeing a version 2.1. Might even be as early as this week, and that's that. I mean, granted, they, you know the the game is not running perfectly yet, but when SimCity 4 first came out, it didn't run very well. It ha- it had bugs. They released patches, and now it runs fine to the point where people are like, "I hate SimCity 5. I'm gonna play SimCity 4." Well, they don't realize that when SimCity 4 came out. It crashed all the time. So please, don't let the bad press dissuade you. Don't let angry game reviewers dissuade you from trying what is actually a fairly good game. If you're a fan of SimCity, you really should give this a try. Now, maybe if if you're really concerned about bugs, hold off, check the, the bug reports, or heck, just even ask me, you know, on the Facebook group or on Twitter or whatever, if if they've been, if certain things have been fixed. I mean, if you don't want to, pay $60, $70 for a game that does have some more, I don't want to say game-breaking bugs at this point. The germ thing is annoying. The arson thing hasn't happened to me, so I don't know. In all the times I've had it, even when the game first came out, I didn't really have that many connectivity issues. I didn't have sync problems. I know a lot of other people did. I'm not minimizing that at all. It's It wasn't great, but things have been improving at a very steady rate. And, you know, maybe give it a couple more weeks or maybe not. But at some point, be it in the future, be it right now, this game does deserve to be played. It really is quite good. The engine is really quite great. The ideas behind it are great. I just hope that they can fix whatever problems there are and, and they can get beyond the bad press that uh, that kind of plagued them from uh, from the poor launch. So that's that. I Give it a whirl, I would say. Please do. So that's it for another week. Thank you to everyone who emailed and voicemailed and commented this time around. Next time, I'm going back to 1993. We're done with the modern stuff for now, and I will be hitting another big guy in the history of PC gaming. I'm going to talk about Myst. So I hope that you will join me. As always, please send in email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. If you agree with me or don't agree with me about SimCity, uh, if you want to talk, talk about X-Wing or Fallout or any previous games that I covered, uh, Strike Commander, anything like that, if, if you came across an interesting piece of news, if uh, you found some indie game that you like that's reminiscent of, of something older, anything you want to talk about, drop me a line. I love hearing from you guys. Thank you to Rick Moyer. For his great audio work, you can find him over at warriormultimedia.com. You can check out the show notes for this show at umbcast.com. Uh, you join the Facebook group over at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. You follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. And you can follow me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. And uh, as always, subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio, leave me a uh, a review over there. I I really enjoy them. I love reading them. I love getting them. I love seeing the stars and all that stuff. So please do continue to leave reviews for me on on the various pod uh, distribution, podcast distribution services. So that is that. I will join you guys next time around in two weeks for Mist here in the Upper Memory Block.
Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join us.